The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Tonight there is a small presentation of what in your papers of today was called philosophical basis of yoga. Now, if I'm talking about philosophy, it's like I'm talking about some intellectual speculation thing. Actually, the name philosophy is typically Western, it's based on a Greek syntax, and uh, we must say from the very beginning that not only in the Orient, but in yoga specifically, there isn't such a thing as philosophy. Philosophy seems to be, for us Westerners, the intellectual speculation of some authority on the nature of things. Professor Immanuel Kant sits in his armchair and he tells us the way he conceives of the universe, that the universe is like this, that this is moral, that this is the spiritual part, this is that and that is so. Somebody else comes and conceives of a slightly different or very different system of philosophy and people have the choice of becoming the adepts of one philosophy or another that means of believing in one philosophy or another so you believe in what Jesus said you says I am in the philosophy of Jesus you believe what Karl Marx said you are in the philosophy of Karl Marx and so on in yoga there doesn't exist such a thing the yogis are not interested in these things the yogis remember they have always been relying on practice that means even the texts of yoga, the theoretical texts of yoga, are really, really short and reduced to the minimum necessary. They are a little bit like a cooking book, exactly as they tell you the recipe, and you put that and you can make a soup or whatever. It's short, it's no fuss, no comments, it's just the bare fact, you do this, you get this. That is why basically in yoga you will not find philosophy, that people try to speculate on the nature of things. Basically what the story is, is that the yogis in their meditation, in their inquiry upon the nature of themselves and of the universe, of course they came to have a vision of things, a vision of the universe. And some of them, as a result of their meditation and perception, they might have written down a few words, a few sentences, a few conclusions, like I've seen the universe and it is like this, like divided in yin and yang or something like this. <clears throat> but this is really for them not a philosophy. It's a kind of, this is the result of my meditation, this is what I have seen, and which for me is as real as the fingers of my hand, and I'm challenging you to contradict me or to confirm me. If you'll do the same thing, maybe you'll see it the same way I did, or maybe you can come up with something new. Let us confront our experience of reality. That is why the name is not very well fit. There is another reason which makes it used. Some of the yogis of the old days, when they meditated, they suddenly discovered some structures of the universe. They perceived some structures of reality. And then to name them, to put a name on them, they used names which were already used in their time by philosophers or by other people, by other teachings. And because of this, you'll find, for example, you'll take some books of yoga and you'll find there statements the yoga is very much based on the Sankhya philosophy. The truth is that the yogis couldn't care less about the Sankhya philosophy and there are many yogis such as Ramakrishna and others 
who didn't read a line of Sankhya philosophy and they didn't even know what it said. The problem is that they used the same terminology. If they wanted to define some concepts of reality, they called it Purusha or Prakriti because those names already existed in the dictionary of their time. And since these names were coined in those philosophies, then people immediately, especially the Westerners now trying to judge scholarly yoga, they said, okay, so the yogis were the adepts of the Sankhya philosophy. Really, the yogis didn't do any philosophy. They stood on their head, they did pranayama, they didn't really care much about doing philosophy. But of course they used the terminology which was comfortable for them, convenient, direct. It is for this reason that to use the name philosophy for what we speak about tonight and for all those basic things of yoga is wrong because the yogis do not consider that that's a speculation uh, of some intellectual person. They consider it's the result of meditation and they have the claim that whoever will do the same process will discover the same structure of reality. This being said, let's leave it to that philosophical basis of yoga. What would it mean? Some people say, well, we are going to talk philosophy. Tonight you are going to tell us some religious things or we are going to speak about reincarnation. What's the philosophy of yoga? Actually not. You'd be surprised. Such things, the yogis do not consider them to be such fundamental truths. What the yogis think is that many of these things can be experienced and in what we call in your text philosophical aspects or philosophical basis of yoga is the fact that yes, there are some aspects of reality which can be perceived only after doing meditation for many years, only after rising Kundalini, only after reaching higher states of consciousness. Therefore, this kind of aspects of reality are difficult to reach. If I'm telling you there are seven chakras, and the chakras are located here, 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 and you can feel them one day by practicing, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, many of you will say, okay, uh, let's try. I heard somewhere that there are actually eight chakras, not seven, but I would like to verify this thing. So you do some yoga, six months of yoga, whatever, you start feeling a bit, and you say, eh, I kind of have a practical confirmation. I can feel these chakras, I can feel the energy moving, it's interesting. But with some things, like some of those which you are going to speak tonight, six months of yoga might not be enough for seeing them the way the great yogis have seen them. That is why they are simply a challenge. It's like the yogis say, look, we have seen the chakras and you can see quite easily that they are real. We have seen the five bodies and you can have an experience of them. And we have also seen some very advanced, deep things, which you will not see so quickly. You will do ten years of yoga, you will see them. If not, it's a kind of a challenge. That means until then it's like a fairy tale you may give credit and say, okay, since these people were so accurate, so thorough, they said this and I verified it, they said this and I also verified it, there is a big chance that this thing also is true, although I haven't seen it yet, and I still have to see it with my own eyes. Remember, the yogis say that these things function in the moment when you see them, not just because you hear that somebody else said about them. This being said, we are not talking to, we're going to talk about reincarnation or things like this. Such things the yogis believe are unimportant. For example, a simple observation in the world of spirituality says that there are people who reach the highest spiritual fulfillment both in the Eastern and in the Western traditions 
some of them believing in reincarnation and some of them not so what does this say this simply says it does not matter you can either believe or not it will not make a difference when it comes to the perception of reality that's a fact to be investigated but it has nothing to do with the spiritual realization either you believe or not you can still reach the fundamentals of yoga and that is why the yogis say it's no need to go into those directions there are yoga techniques which go there and you'll be able to see it for yourself when your time is coming until then the things which are philosophical for you tonight there are only two there are two big statements that are a vision, a fundamental vision of yoga and which you need to check through your practice but which are indeed fundamental the first of them which is inspired from the terminology of Sankhya as I said says that the yogis, the highest of the rishis, the great yogis of yore in deep meditation they divided reality in two fundamental principles they say we can split reality in two fundamental principles which are ultimate like the two halves of the universe this kind of perception creates a kind of polarity if you remember we spoke about the polarity of energy that the energy is plus and minus male, female, cosmic, telluric and now there comes a new form of polarity it sounds speculative that means for a five minutes or so you will ask yourselves okay it's interesting it's a nice intellectual exercise but why do we talk about this I mean does it have any importance on what am I doing today or tomorrow in my yoga practice it does that's the point else I wouldn't bother commenting them you could read them or they would come later in this course as discussions and that is why we comment on them there is an implication of these great truths in the daily life the first of them starts very abstract the yogis would say that the universe is divided in two and one of these two aspects of reality is what we generally represent under this egg-shaped structure which we call nature or universe and this is what the yogis would call the manifestation it's a Tibetan Buddhist way of putting it or the manifested part of the universe what is manifestation or the manifested part of the universe everything there is everything which is manifest as a form of matter as a form of intelligence as a form of energy this, this aspect was called according to Sankhya again they borrowed the word because it was so very convenient expressed the same thing it was called Prakriti and Prakriti in the most convenient translation for Westerners means exactly that nature, mother nature, matter if you prefer in the enlarged meaning of matter that meaning matter, energy, everything which is so what is Prakriti? well the light in this room is Prakriti my body is Prakriti the earth is Prakriti the cosmic energies are Prakriti the air that we breathe is Prakriti the sun and the stars are Prakriti everything which is manifested part that you can go and grab it or feel it or it's measurable in some way is Prakriti it is nature it is the manifested part of the universe so we can say well we can kind of set everything right I mean it's matter with a capital M it is nature with a capital N everything there is and then the yogis say opposite to this or complementary to this of course there exists 
that part of the universe which is not manifested the non-manifestation or the unmanifested this would be like the Taoists of China and the Buddhists make an opposition between the full and the emptiness manifestation and non-manifestation this non-manifestation was conveniently represented by some yogis as a kind of entity which is out of the universe tangent to the universe but beyond the universe and it has been represented by the Sanskrit word from Samkhya again Purusha Purusha, Prakriti being the actual classical couple spirit, matter transcendent nature the non-manifested and the manifested part now of course if I say Purusha it's easy to conceive I'm sorry Prakriti it's easy to conceive about the money what is manifestation is everything there is any form of energy any form of matter any form of substance is just nothing else but Prakriti but what is Purusha can we conceive of something which actually is not manifested which cannot be measured caught touched which is not here not there nowhere indeed let us take an example of a kind of a platonic or neoplatonic way of thinking about things in the category of Purusha example truth truth with a capital T what is truth? where is truth? the big truth the absolute truth where is it? what is it? has anybody seen truth? can anybody tell where it is? is it big? is it small? is it heavy? is it light? Is it what, what is it? it's nothing truth seems to be an abstraction it's an abstract concept and yet it has such a relationship with the physical world right we say every single truth is a pale reflection of that original one truth which is perfect beyond time beyond space absolute not alterable it cannot have any change truth with capital T cannot change it's a concept it's an absolute concept somebody can come and act and then he can say I act in the name of the truth who is this truth? what is this truth? who has seen it? where is it? it's everywhere and nowhere right? this is exactly the category which reflects Purusha things which are not manifested but out of which all manifested things are a reflection of it the same can be said about goodness or communication or love or whatsoever we are having like an archetype something which is perfect but idealistic let's even say utopian and which does not exist as such because there is no absolute truth in expression in speaking I cannot say anything by word which will not be relative because it's based on concepts which are relative therefore the yogis have noticed or have seen that in their relationship to the reality they discover this that the universe is made of a manifested part which is in change in continuous movement and change the universe the nature mother nature energies into motion suns and galaxies being created and destroyed things appearing and disappearing the matter and energy in eternal transformation in eternal change and something which does not change because it's not of this world which is like an archetype which is like a perfect idealized model and it is belonging to the world of the principles of the abstract 
of the non-manifestation. Many people would say, okay, sounds interesting, what's the use of this one? That means, where does it come in practice? Let's come with some practical implications. You cannot have the proof right now, today, that what the yogis saw was right, and indeed the universe can be divided like this, and what's the relevance of it? I mean, okay, on one side we have all the energies, all the chakras, all the forms, all the emotions, or everything, and on the other hand we have something which is eternal, unchangeable, absolute, but kind of not interacting. It's like the void part not interacting with manifestation. Let's see some implications, as I said, and you will see that the yogis found a practical bridge to this. It actually means something for them in their meditation and in their practical life. Example, the yogis would say, if the human being is a copy of the universe, as we said from day one, then automatically every single little human being, a microcosm, copies the great universe. That means it has a prakriti part, and it also has a purusha part. That means in me, as a human being, I am also made of a mini prakriti and a mini purusha. And there is a connection between every level of manifestation. As I said, the sun and the moon and everything has connections in my chakras and it resonates through my chakras. And also there is a resonance at the level of the purusha. Therefore, the yogis would say, in the human being, there is a part which is always changing my body. What is my prakriti part? All my five bodies are prakriti. My body, my etheric body, my astral body, my mental body, all of them are changing, changing, right? They are in motion. I receive energy, I give energy, my body grows. One day it will die. It is simply a part of an eternal transformation. And at the same time, the yogis say there is in me something which is the, of the nature of the absolute, of the infinite. That means there is in me a small spark, a projection of this part of the universe which like the truth and like the great principles is unchangeable, it is eternal, it is indestructible, it does not get involved in this world, it is not affected by the changes which happen in the matter and in the energy. This little grain of immortality, this little spark of infinite which I have in me, is the one which the yogis in India they have called Atma or Atman, this meaning actually in popularized western language, the supreme self, the true self. The yogis say at the ultimate analysis, you are not Prakriti which is changing all the time, and stays never the same, but the only thing which stays constant in you, and it is your real I, your real consciousness, is actually Atma or Atman. So this Atma or Atman is the drop of infinite which we human beings have in us, and we can say to a large extent that the purpose of yoga, many of the yoga meditations have exactly as purpose, the finding of this one, to become yourself your true self, not your mask, not your changing personality. This Atman being the being of the nature of the Absolute, it is infinite, and by the strange mathematics of the infinite, a piece of the infinite is as infinite as the whole infinite. That is why infinite plus infinite equal infinite, infinite multiplied infinite is also infinite, and so on. The mathematics of infinite, they have totally different rules, 
And that is why from the infinite you can sometimes subtract an infinity of elements and still it remains infinite and so on. If you ever did mathematics of transcendent numbers and things like this, then you know what I'm talking about. So in this way, I'm telling you this because the yogis say that is the basis of the infinite. This is why we say that we human beings have got something eternal in us. Because there is something which does not change with time, with space, with old age, with decay. Exactly as the absolute truth does not change. Even if the solar system disappears, absolute truth is absolute truth. Truth as a principle will always exist and wherever on in any galaxy or planet in this universe somebody will say a truth, that truth will be just a reflection of that archetypal truth which is the mother of all truths, the archetype of all truths. This being said, the yogis therefore are saying that in the human being we are having this changeable part that you cannot rely on, which is like a river, it keeps flowing, flowing, and there is something which can be called and is called by many experts like Gurdjieff, for example, the, the witness that there is in me something which is pure consciousness, which does not change, which is neither happy nor sad, nor which is simply the I the consciousness. That is the thing which makes me able to say I, I am, which an animal cannot. This thing is what the yogis have called Atman and to show this correspondence the big Atman, the Atman of the universe is sometimes called Paramatman like the Atman of the universe, the huge Atman, the big Atman. The word Paramatman is even translated in India sometimes as God because if you accept that there may be existing something infinite, eternal, then this is the closest that you get. Paramatman is the self of the universe. Exactly as the self of my body is Atman, the self of this huge universe, of this infinite universe basically, is Paramatman, the cosmic consciousness, the individual consciousness and the cosmic consciousness. And many people in yoga, they have looked exactly for this relationship. What is the, re the relationship between my I and the I of the universe? In which relationship am I with the consciousness of this universe? This is a beautiful concept which gives us some ideas about evolution in yoga, what we are searching for. It shows also that this factor cannot be influenced by energy. There is nothing you can do to influence Purusha, the non-manifested. There is nothing you can do for influencing the Absolute Truth, for example. Absolute Truth remains the same throughout any circumstance, time or whatever. The same Paramatman or Atman is the same duality in Vedanta, in the Vedantic teachings of India, is sometimes called Brahman. All these three are like three equivalent names for the same thing, just to show you in different traditions. Brahman is from Vedanta. Attention, people who don't know Sanskrit, they easily fall in the trap of believing that Brahman is the same thing with Brahma, with A in the end. In India there are at least three words which bear the same root Brahman, Brahmin, Brahma. Brahmin is a person belonging to the caste of the Brahmins and that means a priest in traditional Vedic culture. Brahma is one of the three gods of Hinduism, of the Hindu religion. 
they said that the divine nature will be divided in Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the creator, the preserver and the destroyer or the resolver of the universe and Brahman is a word which in Sanskrit grammar is in the neutral it's like applying to words, it's like it it's not he or she, it's a it and it can be translated best in our western concept as the absolute, it means the absolute it and therefore it does not designate a being or a person, it designates a supreme principle. That is why, uh, do not get confused, because here is, this is not about the Hinduism part, this is actually about the Vedantic part of India. So the supreme reality, the void part, you see, we do not really understand what the relationship between them is. In Tao Te King, in one of the Taoist ancient texts, Lao Tzu makes speculations like this. He says, take for example a pot, a pot like a mug for drinking something. A mug is basically a hole, it's an emptiness, and you just use the walls to delimitate it, to put a borderline on it. So imagine a mug without the hole, it would be useless. The mug is useful exactly because of what it lacks because of what it isn't. Or even more, he says, take a wheel, the wheel of a cart. The wheel of a cart is made of the circumference and spokes, but in the middle it has a hole. And without that hole, the wheel is useless, you cannot use it. So the wheel finds its usefulness in the hole in the middle of it. That is why this aspect of non-manifestation, which is nothing you can say, the Vedantics called it by this name neti neti, it's neither this nor that, it's not the body, it's not the energy, it's not this, not that, that is why it is very often represented negative. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, not negative morally, negative existentially, like we can't say what it is. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa uh, said there is no word that has ever tainted the nature of Brahman. That means whatever you say, it's stupid, it's false, because it applies to a form of energy and it applies to Prakriti. Shankaracharya, the modern, in, a thousand years ago, the modern father of, Buddha, of uh, Vedanta, after a life of meditation on Brahman, he says about Brahman, we can say only one thing, that it is without end. This in itself is again a negative thing, I don't know if you realize, because without end means not I'm saying what it is, I'm saying what it isn't, it has no end. Therefore he said, nobody has ever found the end of Purusha, of the non-manifest, nobody can say this is the borderline and beyond it there is something else. And in this way, uh, even in the Jaina things of India, traditions of India, they sometimes have this beautiful representation which was taken for the Supreme Self, because many people inquire, what is the nature of myself? It's not the body, it's not the energy, it's not the emotions, it's not the ideas, then what the heck is it? And in the Jaina, they represented the shape of a man put in a plate, in a metal plate, they cut the shape, the profile of a man, and in the middle they cut another one smaller, and they took it out. It's like a man empty inside. And that's exactly what the Buddhists say, that the essence of everything is emptiness, that in the middle of everything you are going actually to find emptiness. That emptiness, the Christian commentators a hundred years ago, when they started being confronted with Buddhism and you know the Christian missionary style and so on, they started saying, oh, Buddhism, look, they are searching for nothingness, they are searching for the void, what kind of spiritual power, I mean just to do meditation to discover that you are nothing, what a stupidity, but that nothing 
is nothing in a, in a metaphysical way. That emptiness means just the space, it's like the hole of the wheel, or like the emptiness of the mug. It means the absolute truth, it means something which cannot be designated by words. That's why I saw in some material of Dalai Lama, he was trying to explain some things and he said emptiness means that it is empty of defects, it is empty of flaws. That means there is nothing in the limited human language or mind which can name it. We don't have a concept or a word for it. That is why it's like the great mysterious, it's like the great mysterious one. In many traditions this transcendent aspect is called the great the mysterious, the great mysterious, the great unknown. Because like there is in me something which I cannot say any word about and which is my pure existence. That means if I shut up and I'm not trying to put any label on it, in me there is a pure consciousness, there is someone. I am someone, but that someone is nothing I can tell about it. Whatever word I say, I will say something about my body, my emotions, my mind. I cannot really say who that someone is. That is why this question, who am I, can receive a metaphysical answer. I am actually Atman. But that's just a word, because in, in itself, Atman is again, you just fill the gap with the word. That is why many Gurdjieff and others, they came with this, that eventually you are going to answer by saying, I am, not what I am, not I am, X, 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 I am, simply. That is why even in the Bible, when one of the Old Testament prophets is meeting with God, and he says, God, but tell me who you are, so I should tell to people with whom I talk. And God in the Bible answers by saying an incredible sentence, uh, he expresses it in ancient Hebrew by saying Ehiyeh, which means I am the one that I am. I am I. It means I am I. That means what kind of name is this? What is this? It's simply an expression of the consciousness. I am and that is enough. These two words are the end of it because you don't need to say I am that or this. Then it doesn't work anymore. And in this way the yogis have this beautiful perception that inside every being and at the level of the universe there exists this fundamental consciousness which is like the axis of the universe exactly as the wheel has in its middle the axis and around that axis the wheel spins exactly in the same way on one hand we have the nature infinite, powerful, all-encompassing and something which is the fulcrum of the universe the center of the whole thing which is immovable, which does not transform, which does not change. This is the relationship between them two and the yogis say, okay, exactly as the universe has it, I have it and this is what I am looking for to answer to this fundamental question. The same reality, because now we try to understand what is so practical about it. How does this come in the meditation, in the practical life? What do I understand about myself by analyzing this? Okay, I'm having Purusha Prakriti or Brahman, then if they call it Brahman, I forgot to say, then the equivalent of it would be in Vedanta Maya. They didn't call it Prakriti, but Maya. The famous Maya, you have heard, yeah, Maya, the great dream, the great illusion. The whole world is just a movie under motion, and in it or hidden in it, there is something which is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, perfect, of the nature of the Absolute, like Absolute Truth, or one is... Brahman the Absolute. 
Now, in the we still don't understand, I mean, how do they interact? Okay, there is absolute truth, and I can say, I come in the name of the truth. There is absolute justice, and I say, I act in the name of righteousness, of justice. Those are like concepts, but still, how do they act, I mean, in me, if I am a person made of both of them, if I am a copy of the universe, how do they mix to define this polarity between them? The tantric tradition of India was even smarter. It gave another name to this polarity, which is very beautiful because the tantrics have been like the shamans. They personified. They used exactly the same thing as in the fairy tales. In the fairy tales, we have the good versus the evil, and the good is the handsome prince, and the evil is the dragon. So the handsome prince fights the dragon, he wins in spite of all oppositions, and he even gets the girl and saves the world in the end, right? That's the archetype of it. Good wins versus evil, right? So it's a personification. Nobody of you will ask where did the dragon live and in which century? Because none of you believe that the dragon is a real person. It's a symbol. It's an allegory. In the same way, Tantra has used symbols. It personified these principles. And it is very beautiful because it gives them a color. It has, she called, the Tantric tradition has called them the famous Shiva and Shakti, the mother and the father of the universe, the masculine and the feminine aspects of the universe. So for the Tantrics, Prakriti or the world is Shakti. The world itself, the word itself means power. Shakti means power. That is why Sir Arthur Avalon has one of his old books which is called The World as Power. The World as, the world as Shakti. According to the Tantrics, the world is Shakti. That is the main opposition with Vedanta. Vedanta says the world is a dream. Forget about it. And the Tantrics say no. The world is the goddess, it's the mother of the universe, it's the Shakti, we should not forget about it. We should venerate the universe because it is the visible part of the divine. It is half of the orange, it is the visible half of the orange and it bears in it as much meaning as the invisible part of the orange, the transcendent one. So in the Tantric tradition, the Shakti part was considered to be the manifested part and Shiva is the great mysterious one, the void, the unknown aspect. This may lead sometimes to some sexist thing like men are Shiva, women are Shakti. It's not quite true because I hope you realize that each and every human being is a complete structure. That means every man and every woman, they have in their structure Purusha and Prakriti. That means I, as a man, I'm having a Shakti part, which is my body and everything, and I'm having a Shiva part, which is my Atman, my witness. This does not depend on sex. It means I can be a woman and have the Shiva part activated in me perfectly. I will give you anecdotic uh, illustrations of this. For example, Kashmir has in his history one of the greatest poetesses of India, a woman who was a crazy poet and at the same time she was a great yogini. She reached the state of samadhi. She is one of the most famous enlightened women of the history of India. And this woman, she is called Lala or Laleshwari, Lal Didi or Lal Dead, all these names are to her. Lala, basically, she lived in the 12th century and she was going naked, first of all. She was like some yogis of someone. She never had any clothes. The climate permitted, she was going around naked. Sometimes she is invited to a gathering at the court of the local king. 
because they knew this Lala, she's a great yogini, she entered Samadhi, she's a holy woman, call her. So they called her. So she appeared, of course, naked. And some of the pundits, of the learned, of the jerks, basically, who did a lot of theory and not the practice, they got angry at her. I mean, it was kind of provoking them. Now there is a woman coming naked in the middle of this gathering. And they told her, look, we know that you are a great saint and you meditate, but this is a social gathering, you know. So if you are admitted to come to this gathering, you should behave according to the rules of the society. When you live in the mountains there, you can stay naked and howl like a wolf and do whatever you want because that you are alone. But here is the world of people. It's the world of human beings. And here we have some social rules, so we should comply to our social rules, at least out of politeness for us because it disturbs us to see you naked and we are not used we don't have your level of consciousness to bear it. And Lala was shocked in the beginning because this guy made sense. And she thought a little bit and then she started laughing. And she said, I found where the defect is in what you said. The problem is, she said, that I have witnessed the presence of Shiva by which she meant Paramatman, the supreme self of the universe. And she said, when I look at you, compared with that reality, all of you are women. She meant all of you are in Shakti. None of you has reached that one. So he said, for me there is no need to dress in front of you because there is no man around. I would dress myself in front of a man, but there is no man around. Basically she would say, I am more man than you because I aroused this aspect. The same Lala, to see that she was not completely senseless, she was crazy but not senseless. There is another story, there are so many legends in Kashmir about her. There is another story, at some point she was walking on a hill and she sees from great distance, like two kilometers away on the opposite hill, the road was going up and down on the opposite side of the hill coming down so going to meet with her after a while there comes somebody a man apparently on a donkey and she never met I mean from two kilometers you can't even recognize someone it's just like a dot on a hill so suddenly Lala the crazy poet she jumps in the first house and she jumps straight in the bread oven I don't know if you've seen the tandoori the kind of ovens they have in India it's like a vertical oven so it's like a cocoon and it's pretty big so she jumped in the oven and the owner of the house said crazy woman you know what you're doing in my oven you know get out you'll get dirty you'll spoil my oven perhaps what the heck are you doing in my oven and Lala answered I cannot come out because there is a man out there the man the person who was on the opposite side of the hill was Ali Hamadan Muradin I don't know what the guy who converted Kashmir to Islam who was a very very big Sufi saint and another enlightened being and Lala seeing him from the other side of the hill she said there is finally a man I should cover my nakedness that means she really had the sense of it she could feel immediately there is something this game of words shows exactly this that in me there is this stable part like a rock and there is the ocean in motion going around there are so very beautiful representations of the tantrics meant to make you understand what are the parts of you what are the forces of you for example the, for the tantrics there is one of the symbols which is very often in India and it's of course not understood today is that the Shiva aspect is lying down dead as a corpse and Shakti, the goddess, is dancing glorious on the chest of Shiva. So you have a goddess naked, glorious, dancing, with many arms sometimes, and Shiva lying down like a corpse. <laughs> this is exactly trying to explain the Purusha and Prakriti. The Shiva aspect, the Purusha aspect, is immobile. It has no power 
whatsoever. It cannot do anything. The Shiva aspect or the Purusha aspect is responsible in this universe with just one thing. Consciousness. I am. Pure consciousness. It has not the power to move a feather in this universe. The power is on the Shakti side. It's the goddess that dances and moves the universe. The universe in motion, it's the goddess. That is why the tantrics of India, they say you should always worship God under the form of the goddess. Because that's the active aspect of God. The Shiva aspect is immobile. It represents just the pure consciousness. But every change that you might wish, either you want to get rich or powerful or intelligent or better or whatever, is actually an element of Prakriti. It is Shakti. And therefore the Tantrics of India, they say you need the grace of the feminine aspect of God to transform, to obtain, to have power, to change. That is why you should worship the Goddess. It is true, the masculine aspect is there, but it gives just this perception of I am, which of course is fundamental, it's Atman. But besides that, if you want anything else out of this life, out of this universe, it is all of it coming in the province of Shakti or of the Goddess. So for them, it's very clear. That is why it was written in the Tantra course in number 12 where we saw that the feminine aspect is active and the masculine aspect is passive. Not with reference to plus and minus, with reference to this metaphysical thing where the feminine aspect represents Shakti, the energy and the motion, and Shiva is a great corpse. In Sanskrit there is a game of words with Shiva and Shava and it's also more significant in Sanskrit because in Sanskrit every letter is automatically followed by A and if you want to change this A you have to add something and then for example it can become E and then they say Shiva without his energy is Shava corpse, dead body like it stays blissful, pure consciousness nothing else it has no power to act it is the Shakti that acts that is why the tantric say Shiva acts through Shakti. It is Shakti which acts in the universe. This shows very well that in me I'm having this active power that I can change things with and the Samadhi, the pure consciousness, is something which has nothing to do with it. That is why, for example, the yogis of India say you should not expect to get Prakriti effect from Purusa meditation. Example, I have reached Samadhi. That doesn't make me speak German. I will not speak German because I reached Samadhi. Because German is a talent which belongs to Prakriti. It's a force. Here is an aspect of the intelligence. It's a knowledge. It's a skill. The pure consciousness cannot give you that. It just gives you the pure awareness. To learn German, you need to do something in Prakriti at this level. That is why many people have a phantasmagoric idea about what do we seek for. What is this spiritual realization? Spiritual realization is a very specific thing. It means to reach your essence. But it doesn't mean that at the same time you will become skillful in electronics and in Zulu language or whatever. No, it won't. Those are different. They don't belong to this. Another beautiful image. <coughs> In India, sometimes Shiva is represented sitting, like in a meditation position, and Shakti dances around. 
So Shiva is in meditation, eyes open, fully conscious, like a rock in the middle of a storm, and around Shakti dances, it's like a cyclone. You have the pure consciousness and the world in motion. They say that in the middle of yourself and of the universe, you have the pure consciousness, the witness, the Atman, and then everything around is like in motion. And they say, because they try to explain, they say, why is Shakti dancing? And they say, Shakti is like reflecting Shiva. In this universe, you will find truth, you will find goodness, you will find justice, but none of them absolute, none of them perfect. They are like mirror reflections of something which is in the middle, perfect, infinite, eternal, absolute, but which cannot be reproduced in actual fact. So it's like the whole universe is a desperate attempt to, to create perfection, which cannot exist, because in this universe things are finite, they are not infinite. We have limits, we have space and time, which makes that nothing is infinite. And because of this, the universe is like a ceaseless attempt to create an image of perfection which is in the middle. So in the middle of me, there is an archetype, there is something perfect, which my body, my emotions and my mind cannot be. They can never be that. That thing exists only in the middle. That is why, this is, you have the myth of the dance of Shakti, that Shakti creates the universe, then she sees the universe is not perfect, and then she destroys it again, and she creates it again. And so, it's like waves against the shore. A wave comes, goes back, and then another wave. And it continues forever and ever. The yogi say that's the movement of the universe. Creation and destruction by a force which all the time tries to create more and more perfection. Why is this significant? Because this shows that all real knowledge is not outward, but inward. See, the yogis, for example, believe that to know, you don't need to go outside, you need to go inside, because the archetype of everything is inside, not outside. The word outside is quantitative. It's exactly like, for example, that, let's make a drawing. They say it's exactly like this Atman thing would be the center of the wheel of the universe, and all these levels are like onion layers around it. So the more you are far from the center, that's the concept of centering. Centering means to reach the true center, to reach the self. So the further you are from this self, the more distant you are from your real center. The yogi says, out there you can know quantitatively. And you cannot, your brain is finite, your time is finite, so when can you know everything? For example, let's suppose that somebody tries to learn every single language and form of communication on this planet. I'm not saying in this galaxy, I'm just saying on this planet. There is nobody. Today on this planet, you don't have a single person who can speak all the languages, dialects, but there will always be some village which speaks another language. So the yogi is saying this is like you try to know here, quantitatively, you just have this much knowledge. And your body, brain, time, does not allow you to know more than something. But if you go inside, all the knowledge which exists out there is actually a reflection 
from the self inside you there is something which is the fulcrum, the essence of all communication. That is why Samyogi said, when I have reached this, I could, if I wanted, understand even the language of birds and trees, because all communication was just resulting from this. It was just a development, a reflection in manifestation of this principle. You have got perfection and the infinite inside you. That is why <coughs> Lao Tzu says, the one who knows other, other people is strong, but the one who knows himself is truly strong. Because the universe is in you. That is why even Jesus and the others say, know thyself. The Greeks said, know thyself and you will know the universe. Why? Because the universe is actually permitted by my Atman, by myself. I'm having in me this germ, which is the archetype of everything. And even the Prophet Muhammad, in one of his sayings, he says in the Quran, some place, he who knows himself knows God. Paradoxical statement, because it's like egocentric. He doesn't speak about the ego. He speaks about knowing yourself, this essence, this Atman, which the yogis are searching. Let me give you a more profane example, so you understand why the yogis claim that there is omniscience, that there is omnipotence, that a human being can reach to know something, everything, but not quantitatively, qualitatively. That means a man like Ramakrishna was not able to speak German, but at the time, if for example there will be a need, there have been examples of saints and mystics who in a moment of inspiration they started speaking foreign languages that they never spoke. The possibility is there, but that possibility should come from inside. Let's suppose one of you tries to understand wine, thrilling topic. How to understand all wine on this planet? You should go and drink a little bit of every sample of wine, uh, drink from France, drink from Spain, drink from California. The result? A, life, a whole life is not enough for drinking a bit of every wine on this planet and you'll end by being a drunk, you'll end by being confused. But the yogis say, if somebody would take all the wine on this planet, boil it down until it becomes just a drop, which is the very, very concentrated essence of all the wine on this planet, and you have that vial with one drop, you drink it, and say, ha, this is where the wine comes from. And then whoever comes and brings you some wine, you say, mm, I can recognize it. It is in this drop which I drank. It's the essence of it. I already have it. Your wine is just like a dilution from the wine which I have been drinking. If you understand Atman, you have potentially the possibility to understand everything. That's why the yogis do not believe in quantitative knowledge. They say the way to know the universe is not to take the spaceship uh, explorer or whatever it is and to boldly go where nobody has gone, the Star Trek thing, I forgot it. They're announcing, you know, just go and explore Star which No, that has no end. There is a way of knowing everything because all the stars and the galaxies, they come from this one reality which is in the center of you. You have got the kingdom of heaven, the infinite God in you. Isn't this what the great mystics say, that God is in you? Because we have in you something infinite. That God is in the heart of man, says I think Jesus. Incredible! How can I have in the heart of me, so to speak, in the core of me, how can I have the infinite, the absolute? 
That is the mathematics of the infinite. That it is possible for the human being to reach that witness from which everything else evolves. And then knowledge becomes qualitative. You know something from where everything else becomes known. Else, you could take a man like Jesus, for example, and say, what does Jesus know about growing children? He never had children, so he should shut up. He doesn't have the authority to speak about growing children, because he has never been a father. If you take it physically, yes, but if you take it at this level, you could identify with the parentage principle itself and know everything, know more than the best father of this planet, if you would really want to go into that. That is why the yogis always advise to know things inwardly. It is even Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, after having his near-death experience, who writes in his little prints that the things which are known through the heart, those things are known indeed, and the others you actually don't know them. That is valid about everything. The yogis say that it is one thing to know the atom, the structure of the atom, scientifically, like scientists, write some equation, atom is made of electrons, it is made of protons, of neutrons, and it's another thing to know it directly, because the atoms can be felt, so to say. They are the expression of a fundamental energy. That is why uh, the yogis say that knowledge is of two types, the external one in Prakriti and the internal one in Purusha, in the self. And this I can go on with this explanation, I can tell you more, but time will get short soon. I'm trying to show you that this division of reality is very significant. You see, for example, for the yogis, not only knowledge, but let's take even this problem with Shiva and Shakti. For example, for the tantrics of India and for the yogis of India, femininity and masculinity means something completely different. For example, Lala, she was more male than most of the males around her in a spiritual sense. For example, the, by this analogy that in the middle you have the witness, which is not fooled, eyes open, conscious, eternal, and the world changes. It's like the veils of Maya, right? The goddess dances, but in the middle of this phantasmagoric dance, Shiva is completely unaffected. The witness never gets fooled. It is always there. So basically, in, if you ask a yogi who has understood this thing, what means masculinity, he will not tell that to be masculine means to have muscles, or to be macho, or to be strong, or to be dynamic. The word strength fits more to shakti. Shakti means power. The masculinity is the consciousness, is the stability. That is why when you really activate your higher chakra, the result is that you are unruffled, that even in the middle of the biggest storm, you are calm, you are a witness, you are like a stone in the middle of everything. When you haven't reached Atman, your ups and downs is a typical problem of everybody, right? That means now you have a trouble, then you have a joy, then you have this, and you are elated, you are sad, you are depressed, you are man maniacal, you are depressive, whatever, you jump in emotions and extremes. A yogi who has reached his self, would never be influenced by this, he can control it, because he is like a rock. You cannot be touched by things like this. You can be yourself in the middle of everything. You are not a leaf in the wind anymore. You are like a rock in the middle of a storm. Immutable. Nothing can move you. You have reached the middle of the universe. 
like in this analogy if Shakti is a cyclone in the middle you have the eye of the cyclone the one point where it's peace the eye of the cyclone that is why you see this is a very important thing but because what do we try to reach do we try to reach much power do we try to reach much of this much of that or do we try to reach a certain peace in ourselves a certain witness which will not be ruffled by anything this is where we start the travel of discovery I could again speak much more I think it is enough I think you started getting the point there are some things in the papers that you received today just some ideas so this is the first po the ultimate polarity the meditation on the universe as Purusha Prakriti as Shiva Shakti as the manifested and the non-manifested part of the universe that is why uh, now that I'm coming back to what I taught you this morning in meditation I said this morning the mantra which you have received is considered a Shiva mantra many people can get confused because they said ah you got away cheap with that thing with Brahman you tricked us somehow and you said that Brahman is not Brahma and we don't know Sanskrit we can't verify you but with this thing with Shiva we really got you because Shiva I mean every Shiva is this Indian God right who dances who does Shiva Brahma Vishnu Shiva right what have you got to say is, is this yoga or is it Hinduism again we are dealing here with a glitch of names in the tantric tradition of India because somebody says if this is Shiva then please show us where is Vishnu it's not like this the Shiva in this classification is a name which is used by tantric yogis of India is not the same with the Shiva used by the Hindu peasants the name is the same and as symbol it may be preserved but they don't mean the same thing for example for the tantrics Shiva is not one of the three forces of a personality of God that's a very very tricky thing only scholars have understood this and of course the yogis who practice because let's take just a simple demonstration let's take a text from Abhinavagupta 10th century tantric master Kashmir also he says in some place glory be to Shiva the lord of the universe who creates, maintains and destroys the universe hides behind the qualities and reveals himself to those who deserve it that means Abhinavagupta speaks about a Shiva which creates the universe that's Brahma in Hinduism maintains the universe that's Vishnu in Hinduism resorbs the universe that's Shiva Shiva in Hinduism and does two more things which are not even mentioned there so basically the Shiva of Abhinava Gupta is not the Shiva from Hinduism that is why the yogis know this and sometimes they don't use the name of Shiva they instead of uh, for example in Hinduism they say Brahma, Vishnu and Rudra or Brahma, Vishnu and Mahadeva because Shiva has various names and you can change them or if they allow that name Shiva then instead of Shiva here and Shakti they put Bhairava and Bhairavi another name of the god and the goddess of the symbol just to say this is not exactly Shiva so in this way uh, the name is there it can cause a lot of confusions and it does they speak about something else the Shiva Shakti about which the Tantric speak is just the symbol of the ultimate two halves of the universe the half which is active, full the invisible, the transcendent, the void, the emptiness, the unchangeable, the non-manifested. These two parts complete each other exactly as in a pot. You cannot have the pot without the walls or without the hole between the walls. Exactly as in a wheel, you cannot have without a wheel without the hole or without the spokes and the rest. 
These are the two aspects of reality and it is very very beautiful to study in the symbology of Tantra and the others how beautifully they play with this symbolism like between a god and the goddess, between a, fe- a male and a female and how beautifully they describe our soul that in me, I, how can I know me, you know people they say, I cannot understand myself Sometimes, not only that I don't understand others and they do a lot of surprises to me but I don't understand myself Sometimes I'm controversial to myself. I wish to do that and I did something completely different. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm ashamed in myself. Why? Because I don't know myself. I'm trying to do psychology, right? To know different sides of me. All different sides of me are ultimately buttoned in the middle of me, in the Supreme Self. If I know my Atman, then I can understand who I am and why I am and I smile because everything I am fits with what I know I am is just emerging from that central reality and then I am not a mystery to myself I have understood myself I have accepted myself I have conquered myself and if I don't know Atman I can make 30 years of psychology on myself and I will not go because I am just going on these layers trying to understand superficial aspects of personality that's why I cannot understand others I cannot understand myself and I cannot understand the universe the universe is a mystery that is why the yogis always say know inside focus inside the knowledge of the universe is inside the knowledge of reality comes through you know thyself and that's the solution of everything Uh, You see, this is a very, very fundamental direction in yoga. That's why I made all this theory, to show you that this division of reality is very significant for yogis. It's very practical. For them, they say, we are infinite. We can reach the infinite. We have got the organ in us which allows us to know everything, to reach everything, to be everything. Not mentally, not by force, not qualitative, not quantitatively but qualitatively because there is in me something which keeps the key to everything to the whole universe to the whole reality that is the story about Purusha and Prakriti and in the morning when I said that the mantra which you received today by initiation is a Shiva mantra it means that mantra in terms of energy is leading you all the way here to the tangency point that means there is nothing which crosses over this line because there is no energy there is no mind there is no concept so the highest energy that we can conceive is something which is like reaching in Sahasrara at the highest level where there starts the edge of the mysterious the edge of this unknown of the void of the inexpressible of the unfathomable there are a few mantras in Indian culture which are famous that they are able to rise energy to put the energy to this borderline where one is on the threshold between manifestation and non-manifestation this would be the case of the mantra that you have learned this morning that's why I said this mantra is activating the higher chakras Ajna, Sahasrara and it can also generate the state of Samadhi the state of perception of the Atman now besides everything which I said I will stop this one here there is one more point in your papers of today which will take much less time it's also a very subtle thing now uh, you see I divided the nature in two but about half of it I cannot say anything there is nothing which I can tell you about Purusha or the 
Brahman, the Shiva aspect. Words do not apply there. That's why different great masters and texts of yoga and tantra, they laugh. They say trying to tell something about that reality is maybe only determining people to meditate, to give them some motivation. But else, you cannot actually say anything about that reality. The only way of reaching there is to go and see for yourself. You will not be able to tell to others what you have seen because words cannot express it. That's why many mystics, either Rumi in the Sufi mystics or Milarepa in the Tibetan mystics and so on, when they reached this stage, they started writing poems. Milarepa, every time he came out of Samadhi, he wrote a poem. Because perhaps a poem can metaphorically, obliquely suggest the fascinating universe of this Purusha, but there is no word. If I try to describe it as an engineer, I'll fail miserably. There is no word or sentence or expression which can describe that reality. That is why this one needs to be experienced to practice, and fortunately we human beings have got the organ for it. We are all born with something which most of us never explore in their lives. It's latent, waiting there patiently for millions of years, that one day we come to this Buddha nature of ours and explore the reality indeed through it. Now, I cannot say anything about Purusha, but Prakriti is the nature with resonance, with laws, with levels, with chakras, with energies, with all the laws of space and time. That's why everything we study about energies actually applies to Prakriti. It is Prakriti, the one through which I'm swimming to reach there to that level. So it is my body, my energy, my chakras, my emotions, my mind, which is leading me to that border of myself where I'm seeing the infinite in me. All the rest which can be said about the universe is said about Prakriti. I'll simply tell you that the second thing which is difficult for you to fathom, and it's like philosophy, uh, but you will be able to see it sooner or later if you do yoga, is a statement about the formative energies of this universe. That means some very, 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 very subtle energies which beginners don't feel. That means it is said that everything, let's take this as an object, a human being or a phenomenon, is made out of a combination of three fundamental forces, energies, let's call them. Let's call them number one, number two, and number three. These three some things are in infinitely variable mixture in everything and everybody. Everything in this universe, either human being or object or food or energy or whatever, is made of a mixture of these three. These three things are called in Sanskrit gunas, and guna actually means tendency. They are considered to be energies belonging to the causal body. That's why you can't feel them as a beginner, because they belong to a very, very deep body, and it takes a while to reach with your yoga practice there. And these gunas, therefore, are like energies which influence the evolution of every system. They are causal. And when that energy is there, one of them predominantly, you can be sure that that system will develop in this direction because the tendency predominantly is there. There is nothing in this universe which is 100% one and zero of the others. That means everything will contain at least 0.001% of one of them, but still there will be a trace. Nothing, these three, they cannot miss from anything. They are there, but in very different proportions. 
the three gunas, they have a very big relevance in the yoga practice for the things that you are going to understand in a second. Let's mention them and see what they are and then you will see immediately where the point is. The lowest of the gunas is called traditionally in Sanskrit tamas guna. Tamas guna or tamo guna represents the principle of inertia of darkness or of, of obscurity, it is traditionally considered like pointing downwards. That means if a system has tamas guna, a lot predominant, more than the other two, it goes down, it rots, it decays, it breaks, it falls apart, it is simply object to inertia and to stagnation. Example. A human being who is predominantly tamas guna is plump and lazy. The more tamas guna you are, the more fat you are, the less you like to move, the more lazy you are, and tamas guna therefore physically, at the physical level, creates inertia, heaviness in all ways. Tamas guna mentally for a human being means that that human being is inert, obscure. I don't want to know anything, I'm bored by any new knowledge, please don't bother me with this, I just want to sit and to become a potato couch, you know, just, uh, just sit there and rot. I'm, I'm aver averting any new knowledge, any exhilarating thing, any enthusiasm, any move. I don't want to find out more, I think I know enough, uh, you know, all there is, I want to eat, to sleep, to do. This is the tamas guna mentally, completely refractory to knowledge, to development. Now we come to the point, okay, it's not nice that a human being should have tamas guna. Obviously, people who are very tamasic, they hardly would do any yoga or meditation or spirituality because they don't want to transform. They don't have the energy to transform. So, how do you deal with it? Where does it come through? Now we come to a point where you can see that it applies in the practice of yoga. Food. Food is also loaded with tamas and the other two. Therefore there is food which is tamasic. And therefore the simple implication is if you eat a lot of tamasic food, you will become very tamasic. What is tam at least physically. And then maybe there is a correlation between your different bodies, the different levels. What food is tamasic? The food which is tamasic is the food which is putrid, rotten, decayed, heavy, and generally fat, but not, for example, butter is not in this category. So, examples of tamas, pickles, mm, gorgonzola, roquefort cheese, um, all these delicious uh, mackerels which they have in Sweden, which has half-rotten fish, um, game, like when you take a pheasant and you let the meat mature so it gets worms in it and it's considered to be a delicacy. Pickles, if you want another example, you open a barrel of sauerkraut, it stinks horribly, you wonder how will you ever eat it, and yet it is edible, you wash it and you eat it, it's tamas though. Other things which are tamas, traditionally um, fat, for example the lard, the lard and the fat of the pork, the ham of the pork, for example, is typically tamas. There is a whole list of things which is tamas, I gave you already the idea. Things which are rotten, decayed, putrid, which come from a putrefaction or decaying process, which are stagnant and so on. Other things, for example, in India they say food which has been boiled second time. So you are advised never to reheat food. In India they cook food, 
and then they keep it for the evening or for tomorrow but you are not supposed to reheat it if you put it in the fridge you don't reheat it, you eat it cold because if you reheat it, it starts becoming tamas so it's better to cook fresh so eating reheated food makes it tamasic what else? tinned food, because tinned food has been boiled to be sterilized then they cool it down, they put it in the tin then when you take it out of the tin, you boil it again tinned food is tamasic all kinds of other processes of fermentation including the good old beer is a bit tamasic because it results from a fermentation process from a rotting process of those grains uh, enough with this, we promise to go quickly the next one of them is called rajas and rajas is traditionally expressed by two horizontal pointing arrows it is the principle of expansion, movement, dynamism Rajas at the level of the physical body of a human being makes one skinny and nervous all the time moving while the tamasic person is the kind of person who starts drawing, starts dozing in meditation the rajasic person is the person who cannot stay this is the rajasic person not even five minutes there is always an ambition I've got to do something very important now I cannot meditate and so on all the time, all the time carried by some ambition you cannot the tamasic one sleeps in meditation blacks out the rajasic one not able to sit at all the rajasic person is the kind of person for whom the world is not enough movement, movement, movement ambition, ambition, ambition for everything rajas in the mind means what we would call a very ambitious mind rest new projects, new ambitions, new desires the world is not enough when you have a million you want to have a billion when you want a country you want to have the whole planet and the world is not enough of course as they say rajas is the principle of ambition the food which is rajasic and which makes us rajasic is the food which is extreme in taste like for example spices food which is very burning, very salty, very sweet, very sour is rajasic so examples of rajasic food are a lot chili, you name it, black pepper, you know all the great spices and so on rajas, salt is rajas, sugar is rajas vinegar is rajas, lemon juice is rajas everything of this, whatever is very intense in this way is rajas besides this if you want classical things of food which are still rajas the Hindus consider that eggs are rajas it is also a big story in India, it's very big, I'll not make much fuss, I'll just say that garlic and onion are rajas because they are pungent, they are uh, hot like this and I'm sure you can conceive of a lot of things which will fit into the rajas category the rajas makes you restless, that is why uh, you will see that in many ashrams of spiritual teaching in India they said that pupils who want to reach wisdom they should avoid both tamas and rajas if you do too much tamas you will not want to meditate you will sleep 15 hours every night you will be lazy, inert, you will not evolve you will sleep during meditation if you have too much rajas you become violent, aggressive, restless, impatient you will be full of jealousy, full of envy, full of this full of that, your emotions will jump like crazy and you will not be able to keep temperance or control so neither rajas nor tamas seems to be the answer to happiness or more balance or harmony
the last of them represented by an upward pointing arrow which represents the rising the elevation is called in Sanskrit Sattva and Sattva Guna is the principle of balance harmony of elevation of purification I even didn't say they are represented by the three primary colors like Tamas is black Rajas is red and Sattva is white that's why the Brahmins of India they dress in white because white is the color of wisdom of balance of Sattva when a person is physically Sattva that means that person is perfectly harmonious physically not more than necessary not less than necessary just as much as it should be when a person is Sattva from the standpoint of the mind that means that person is neither lazy nor hyperactive such a person is above it such a person can for example go for three months in full power activity work, 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 no laziness, no mercy just go and work whatever day and night and when the goal has been accomplished I don't fall in the trap, in the trap of saying oh the world is not enough now let's go further no, this is what I wanted I got it time to take a hammock and relax that means I am not possessed neither by laziness nor by activity I am able to play with them to be sometimes this and sometimes this that is why sattva is not just a balance of rajas and tamas because else if you will be 50% rajas 50% tamas it would mean you are sattva sattva is a third entity like you have rajas and tamas and sattva is like one which transcends them it's a superior quality since sattva is the one which makes everything go up elevate of course sattvic lifestyle sattvic food and everything would be so much recommended for yogis that's why you guessed the yogis of India understanding these forces which as a beginner you can't feel them and then it hits you you just keep on eating pickles or rotten stinking food and you don't know why your meditation is going to the rats why you keep falling asleep during meditation so you don't know why because you didn't know about these energies and your food is wrong and now you have to fight with your own tamas that is why the yogis were recommended a sattvic lifestyle and of course sattvic diet as well and what is sattva? fortunately a lot of things are sattva for example most cereals like rice, wheat, butter, milk uh, most of the vegetables, most of the fruits when they are ripe they are all of them part of sattva so in this way it is very easy to have a sattvic diet because a lot of harmonious, clean, beautiful things are sattva all of them being measured it's a typical thing that the Brahmins of India the old Vedic culture they tried to be so sattvic not to eat stinky things not to eat pungent, acid, burning things, fiery things to stay on a moderate diet today it is not like this maybe they don't eat so much of the stinky thing although they have lots of pickles in India as well but one about spices when you go in Indian ashrams they keep eating chili like it's uh, I don't know candies or something like this then everybody becomes restless, ambitious, egoistic they don't have peace inside they cannot do a lot of things and you can actually see it so very often I ask people from the ashrams how does it come? you are so sensitive about things but when it comes to food your own food is so full of spices and so on, shouldn't it be mild, pleasant, sweet in taste, like rice with milk, like baby food really be nice, harmonious, uh, they could not seem to see the point 
If you want to know more about this in the papers of today, they were given a few hints. Uh, it is therefore very important. The yogis say you eat sattva, your yoga will progress. You eat tamas, you become more and more animal and you don't know why. You eat rajas, you start dreaming conquering empires and instead of doing meditation or conquering yourself. This is important and that is why it comes as philosophy because there will pass some time before you as beginners in yoga will be able actually to feel the rajas. I mean to take for example a piece of food and to say, oh, this food was reheated, I feel it's very tamasic. You can feel it, theoretically, but it's a very, very deep energy associated with it, and that does not come at all in the first stages of yoga, unless you are born with an amazing perception. So, therefore, in yoga, we tell it from the beginning. It's a thing which even in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna spends three chapters or something, talking about sattva, rajas, tamas, in daily life, in the mind, in behavior, in everything. It's one of the key things in the Indian uh, philosophical discussions and so on and this is again useful for you as beginners to know in time you will get to feel it you will have later in this course in the further month of this course some full analysis of this mentally but if you are interested more there are books which give full lists I mean if you did not get the point the principle and you need just a list for you to see there are for example Swami Shivananda it was easy for me to say that in Rishikesh because the ashram of Swami Shivananda was just on the other side and you could go and buy the book in the same evening but uh, now I'm simply saying it as a fact because you don't find this book so easily in Kopangan uh, Swami Shivananda for example wrote a book about diet and in this book about diet he has a few pages where according to his own opinion he says this is tamasic food blah 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 this is rajasic items of food of course it's mostly Indian food but still it's a start Din, 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 din. This is the sattvic items of food. Pam, 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 pam. So in this way you can make a list and say, okay, I will avoid this and this. Again, nothing is 100%. I will never say that you can eat zero rajas, zero tamas. That's utopian. Moreover, you yourself cannot be 0% rajas. And there must be some, but predominant there should be sattva. Like sattva should be more than the other two if it's possible, by far more than the other two, strictly predominant. And that is exactly the point. You have to lead generally a sattvic lifestyle, if you understood this point, and rajas and tamas should be kept low at it. So in this way, I don't say that I, for example, don't eat a pickle now and then or things like this. I do, but at least I know exactly what I do and I know that if I add it, then I want a few days to go on sattvic food and so that I don't want to feel that my meditation goes dull or that my mind is becoming indifferent and obscure and narrow-minded. That's the second and last thing which I have to tell you tonight. That's the philosophy in yoga. These two things you need to know practically because they address even from the beginning to yoga and they have an importance. The other things, if there is reincarnation or not, is you are going to find yourselves through your yoga practice. It's not my job to tell you about these things. Of course, there are statements of previous yogis, but those are like Arabian tales, like a thousand nights and one night. It's kind of you can believe or not. It's important to find it out yourself and as I said, it's even irrelevant from some standpoints. This is where it limits, this is what I needed to tell you under this form. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. 
For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.